Good morning, good morning. It's almost afternoon. You guys are late. Well, we are in the book of Ephesians. If you would do me a big favor, open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be at mostly this morning. So, I don't know about you, but I love movies that have awesome plot twists, right? Like you're watching it, and the whole time you think you know what's going on, and then all of a sudden, the whole thing flips on its head, and your mind is blown. So, like 2004, The Village, uh, I don't know if any of you have seen it, you're probably judging me if you have, and the whole time you're watching, and you think this takes place in like rural Pennsylvania, 1800s, and you realize it's actually modern day, and your brain is blown, and you got to go back, I'm just kidding, that's not what happens, maybe it is, go watch it, and... and uh, <laughs> Or uh, The Prestige, you get to the end and you're like, they're twins, how did that happen? Or The Sixth Sense when you're like, I see dead people. No, you're not. That's not actually what happens. So you leave. I mean, these movies, I haven't seen these movies in years, but they're still ingrained into my brain. The greatest cinematic plot twist in human history. You ready for it? The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I got to put my iPad down to how does the sound go with the lightsaber? Somebody do it. Uh, you know by now I'm terrible at making noises. <laughs> you haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> and then Luke and Darth Vader are going at, ah, they're on this big platform, and for some reason there's like this um, huge hole at the bottom of that goes on forever and ever. And then Luke is hanging on to the side, and he's like, uh, do you know about your father? I'm doing like my own little version of it. Obi-Wan told me about my father. And then there's this moment where everyone in the theater, like they have no idea what's going to happen, right? And he says, Luke, I am your father. And like, in 1980, here's what happened, okay? Everybody in the entire theater went, Argh! like, oh my gosh, I need to go back and see this movie all over again, right? And so your mind is blown. And because they didn't have the internet, right? They had like three TV stations where you could get all the information you wanted. We had no idea. So friends would go up to friends and be like, oh, is it good? Bro, you got to see it. It's going to change your life, right? <laughs> And people go in, and so you bring somebody back the second time. You're like, I got to see this again. You're doing the whole movie again, and you're watching it, and your friend is like, you're looking at your friend saying, oh, yeah, yeah, remember that part. That's going to become important later. And they're like, shush, I'm trying to watch a movie, <laughs> right? And then again, Luke, I am your father, and Luke falls into this abyss and miraculously lives, which is crazy and stupid. But like, <laughs> you're sitting there watching this, and your brain is blown. And so the third time, you got you to bring a friend again, you know, because you just want to everybody to be like mind blown like you are. Um, what do they call people who are really into Star Wars, by the way? They're not Trekkies, but nerds. Nerds, that's it. Okay, so you're a nerd, right? So you're watching this like the fourth or fifth time, and here's what starts to happen. It's like, eh, kind of no, it kind of loses its, you know, splendor a little bit. You know, you're like, ah, oh, I've been there, done that, you know, and, and now everybody knows. So as soon as you watch The Empire Strikes Back, and if you haven't seen it yet, truly so sorry for spoiling the ending. <laughs> Not really, because <laughs> you're in a cave. So like, <laughs> but it just kind of gets, it gets, it gets old. You can only watch a movie so many times, and that, that awe, that shock, that moment that drove you back to watch it a second time, it just kind of goes away. And so here's what's going to happen this morning. Paul is going to reveal the greatest plot twist in human history. And the audience, when they heard this for the first time, they were like, whoa, no, like this isn't even humanly possible, Right? But you and I, we live 2,000 years past the revealing of this plot twist, and this plot twist is normal. This is a normal human experience for every follower of Jesus Christ, okay? 
My challenge is to bring you back to a point of awe at the plot twist. No pressure fueling, but we're going to try to do this, okay? So what I want to do is bring you back to that moment of shock where the church heard this revelation for the first time, and they were just like, no way. So open with me, Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, the first point in your notes is, I didn't see that one coming. Love that when you're in a movie, and it's just like, like plot twist, plot twist, and isn't it just like God to constantly throw plot twists into our life? Anyone else's life like this? You think it's going one direction, and he's like, psych, you're going in a different direction. And then he's like, nope, that's not where it's going to land either, and you go in a different direction. I almost feel like I'm not prophetic, and I can't plan the future, because every time I have a future that I think is going to happen, it never happens. So wait, I'm not prophetic. So you're going to see a word come out a whole bunch of times, four times in particular, and then it's going to be alluded to five other times, the word mystery. And here's what I need you to understand. Substitute the word mystery for plot twist. And then you're going to be able to understand what is, what is happening here. And so Paul is going to reveal or unveil a mystery. And this mystery is going to be very, very, very hard for the people to understand. And it's going to be shocking for their entire worldview. Although, remember, who is going to be numb to this, this mystery when you hear it? You and me. Good. And so verse 1, we start to learn five things about this mystery. And he starts off and he says, For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. The first thing we learn about this is that the mystery, whatever it might be, it's dangerous. And Paul has finally been put in prison because he is telling people about this mystery. Uh, you get to verse 13, it says this, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. What is he suffering? Imprisonment. Which is your glory? So in verse 2, you're like, surely Paul is going to reveal the mystery. But number two, he says this. Telling the mystery has now become Paul's life calling. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, because he's in jail, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And so now we're going to find that Paul calls whatever this mystery is, it's a stewardship. It is a message. It is a truth. It is a reality that God has intentionally put into the hands of Paul. And Paul now, his life mission, his responsibility, is to make sure that everybody knows the mystery. Do you guys want to know what the mystery is? Don't read ahead. I'm watching you. Number three. The mystery is divine in origin. He doesn't tell us yet. How the mystery was made known to, be, to me by revelation. So this is a piece of information that no human could ever possibly know unless God told them. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So where did the mystery originate? In Jesus. Do you guys want to know the mystery? He doesn't tell you yet. Number four. The mystery was intentionally hidden. You're like, Paul, get to the point. This mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this is a mystery. This is something that God kept up his sleeve for millennia. And that the kings, the prophets, the priests, Abraham, Moses, Adam and Eve, I mean, go all the way back to the beginning of salvation and history and go up to the present day of when Jesus Christ was on the cross. Nobody knew the mystery, okay? Now, this is going to be a huge plot twist, and how many of you want to know the mystery? All right, I'm not going to tell you yet, okay? So here's... 
This is hard because I'm really aggravated at Paul. So anybody ever watch a movie with somebody? Like you just start the movie and they're like, what's happening? Why did they do that? Why are they doing that? What's going on? My mother, okay? Like this is why I don't like watching movies with my mom. And I'm like, mom, I know as much as you know. My level of information is the same as yours. I don't know their name. I don't know why they're doing this. I don't know where that person came from. Yes, that spaceship just landed, but I don't know where it's from. I don't know what the people group are like. Mom, I'm trying to watch the movie. Shush, okay? So Paul has spent five verses building you up, and if you're just kind of reading slowly, you're like, get to the point. It's sort of like somebody comes up to you and says, dude, because that's what people call you, right? Dude, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. What do you want to know? What just happened to you, right? It's white with a little bit of red. Okay? Someone was screaming. Okay? Like, what happened to you? My life was verbally threatened. Okay? My wife just started taking drugs. Okay, what, like, okay, what happened? We had a baby, right? Lead with that. Okay? <laughs> Help me out here, buddy. Like, Start there, and so finally, the mystery is number five. Actually, there is no mystery. We're going to go home. We're going to pray. This is the end of the sermon. I'm joking. You're going to, in a moment, we're going, to, we're going to read to you the mystery, and I've already warned you. You will have zero emotional response over the mystery. My job is to help you understand why they responded, and then God willing, by the grace of God, for you to go back to that moment and be renewed in your awe again over what God has done. Again, no pressure. Fueling, here we go. The mystery is... That the Gentiles, the scum of the earth, the majority of you in this room, are fellow heirs. So, like, imagine, right, you have stepbrothers, and then your biological dad splits your inheritance with them. Anyone? Anyone? Can you say rebellion? Fellow heirs. Members, full members of the same body, full participation, no hierarchy, no division whatsoever, right? And he goes on and says, partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So now you, you're like, well, no, duh. Like anybody can be son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But I, I need you to understand something right now. This simple, basic Christian understanding was not that simple and basic then. This shattered everything they knew about God, their religion, their future, and their purpose. Blew everything out of the water. Uh, two um, plot twists in history. The first one is uh, the cross. Apparently, somehow, um, Satan and the angels and the demons had no idea that the cross was a trick. That on the cross, they would actually be defeated. Satan works all of his muster and all of his power to get Jesus on the cross to execute him, not realizing that this plot twist would come in human history to the point where it seems that the angels were like, no way. Like, did not see that one coming at all. And then I would say, I don't know which is first. You guys can debate in your community groups. Which was the greatest plot twist, the cross or the church? Because apparently, and we'll find out later, even the angels didn't even see this one coming. So two reasons why I think this is a huge deal. Uh, if you were to sit down with any Jew of the first century, and you were to tell them about the church, here's what they would say. That is ridiculous. A holy God would never do this. You are in error. You're a heretic. They'd have your head. This was not in the Jewish idea of what God was capable of doing. 
Well, why? Two, two things are really important to understand. Here's the first. In the history of religion, religions were always, we need to hear this word say always, always ethnocentered. Religions were ethnic, nationalistic, tribal expressions of particular communities, cultures, and civilizations. You live in this country, you have your national religion that is a reflection of your culture, your rites, your traditions, your doctrine, your theology, your holy books. Every culture, tribe, nation, and people group, they would have an ethno-centered religion. And if you wanted to be a part of that religion, do you know what you have to do? You have to join their tribe. You have to look like them, think like them, dress like them. This is the universal concept of religions prior to Christianity. This is what they did. The idea that a religion is applicable to different people in different cultures is a fundamentally Christian idea that was launched by the church. Okay? And so for them, this is an entirely brand new concept of religion. No longer, no longer, if you're going to worship God, do you need to become like a Jew? You need to become like Jesus. It's very different. And all of a sudden, Jesus is now not just relevant for Jews and anyone who wants to become like a Jew, but Jesus is relevant for every human being that has ever lived, will ever lived, or was alive, no matter what language they speak, the color of their skin, the culture they live in. And Jesus would now invade cultures, I want you to hear this, he would preserve their culture and redeem the people. He would not transform their culture into Judaism. He would preserve what is unique and beautiful and, 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 and lovely about this culture, but then he would inject Jesus into it and transform the people. Christianity is not about culture conforming. It is about culture preservation and letting Jesus come into this culture and transform the people and redeeming the aspects of culture which are God-glorifying. You don't have to dress like someone to follow Jesus. You don't have to do that. Christianity was the first religion that enters into the world and says anybody in any culture can worship Jesus and you do not have to conform to a nationalistic, tribalistic reflection of that culture. Okay? I probably should talk slower. Point being, anybody could come to Jesus. It does not matter who you are, and you don't have to change the way you dress, unless certain things are happening, unless it's not glorifying to God. You don't have to change the language you speak. You don't have to start practicing Jewish rites and rituals and religious practices. You could come to faith wherever you're at, and the gospel is relevant for everyone, everywhere of all time. That is crazy. That is not the way religion was understood before Christianity. This is a brand new concept. It was transnational, transcultural, transgeographical. So your natural response is going to be this. But aren't a lot of the world religions open to all people? Yes and no. If they are, it is because of the legacy that Christianity paid for them. But I want you to hear this. If, if you're going to become a Muslim, you're going to find that Islam wants to conform you to their culture that Islam wants to come into cultures and fundamentally transform their language and their dress and their habits and their styles to fit a Mideastern culture. Hinduism, it is very hard, if not impossible, to worship the Hindu gods and goddesses if you are not conforming your language and your understanding to their worldview and their culture and their particular unique expressions. And if there is any bit of these religions right, that is able to be transferred to various cultures and uphold their cultural identity, it is unique, and it is only because of the Christian influence on that religion. Fundamentally, Christianity was different than any other religion that has ever existed and said, you, you can come to Jesus, 
and still be a Gentile or a Roman or a barbarian, and you can preserve aspects of your culture and your language. Number two, the reason this mystery was so shocking for them is that Judaism, now their understanding, was not the end. It was a means. It was a means to an end, and Judaism was the incubator for God's plan, the church. It was not the point. That is mind-boggling because their entire life, all they've ever known and through salvation history is God investing into a Jewish people, building a Jewish legal system and a Jewish nation. And now all at once, here's what he says, Jesus comes and the law and the temple and the traditions are no longer necessary. All that's necessary for anybody is what? Faith in Jesus. That is it. Do you understand? Everything they've ever known about God, everything they've ever known about religion, with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, he almost throws them out the window and says, now this is for everybody, and they don't need to become circumcised or follow the law to come to Jesus. Blew their mind. Blew their mind. Number two in your notes. That really changes the way I see things. I love when you get done with a movie, and you're like, man, just changed my mind. Like when I saw Supersize Me for the first time, and I felt like, an ugly, terrible human being forever eating McDonald's. And then I realize and now every time I go there, I feel like the worst human ever because I watched that movie, right? Those kind of things. Here's what he says. Of this gospel, remember this gospel is the truth that Jesus shed blood is for everyone and the requirement for forgiveness and salvation is not rites, rituals, laws, temples, and priests, but faith in Jesus, okay? This gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. I'm sure at times this didn't feel like a gift. Thanks, God. (laughs) Which was given to me by the working of his power. What he's trying to say here is that this was not an easy, natural calling for me. The fact that I, Paul, a Jew, am devoting my life to the Gentiles, the scum of the earth, knowing the glory of God that they are co-heirs with the Jews. Like, this is nothing short of the working of the power of God in me. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, why is he the least? Because this is the guy that persecuted and killed Christians. He sees himself genuinely, this isn't just false humility, genuinely sees himself as unworthy to be used of God for anything, and it blows his mind that vile Paul could be used in such an amazing way. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the Jews at this point are saying, that's my inheritance. That is not their inheritance. These barbarians, these ex-pagans who don't even look like Jews, these are my riches. I get to inherit this. And Paul has to come into these Christian communities, these early church communities, and blow their mind and say, listen, I know that you had expectations that the plot was going to turn out one way. But if you haven't learned by now, God doesn't play by your rules, and he loves plot twists, and this is real, so deal with it or die. Okay? They, those scum of the earth, are brothers, and they are sisters. So I want you to notice three things. Notice that I think Paul is a little bit more excited about this message than probably most people in the church, right? Just imagine for a moment, you are a Gentile, and you have been treated as the scum of the earth, by your Jewish brothers. 
You get to go to Jews and tell them, hey, you know your Jewish Messiah? You've missed the whole point. As a Gentile, I want to tell you the truth about your religion. <laughs> Could you imagine the tension in a Gentile sharing the gospel with a Jew? Or a Jew like Paul saying, hey, you remember when I tried to kill you guys? Um, yeah, that God is correct. And Gentiles, I want you to hear this. Um, come to faith in Jesus. You can see the Gentiles are like, why would we come to a Jewish God? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's, yes, he's Jewish. Okay, yes, Jesus was Jewish. But he's not fundamentally for Jews. He's for everybody. Well, that doesn't make any sense because gods are national expressions of civilizations and cultures and communities. No, 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 but this is a transcultural, transnational, transgeographic God. They don't even have categories. Do you get this? Like this, this takes the power of God to dismantle the division, A, between these people, let alone these people going out into the world and telling people about Jesus. Gentile goes to Gentile and he says, come to the Jewish God. <laughs> The Jews hate us. Okay, it's not technically the Jewish guy. I mean, you get the point. Number two. Notice this, that God called Paul to preach to the people he hated the most to bring them to a faith in a God that he loathed. Isn't this just a great plot twist also in Paul's life? The God that he hated, Jesus, now he has to go tell the people that he hated the most, the Gentiles, to worship the God that he wanted to destroy. It's crazy. I just love the genius of God. I love how he takes our lives, he interrupts them, flips our life purpose on its head, blows our mind, brings plot twists in. It's crazy. So if you want to follow Jesus, expect plot twists. Can I get an amen from anyone here? Finally, number three, I want you to notice here that Paul is inviting everyone to join him. So right here directly, he does not say it, but I want to tell you what is not happening. He's not saying... Um, hey, go get some popcorn for like $13.95 and get a, a large Pepsi for another $14, 4,000 calories, and feel like a total bum and regret everything you ate. And just watch me as I go show you how it's done. Right? Do you guys get that that's not what Paul's intention is? Paul's intention is this. Look at what I do. This is my unique calling. Now you go and you bring the gospel to whatever Jew or Gentile God calls you to bring the gospel to. This is not just something I'm saying, watch. This is something I'm saying, watch, and then do what I do. And so if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be about bringing the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles wherever you might find them. He goes on. He says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Okay. I just want to pause there. This is a little, I was reading this. Sometimes I like to bring you into my brain when I read. So I'll buy my wife a Christmas present if I'm like really doing awesome in November. I mean, I'm on the ball. This is once or twice ever, okay? Let's be clear. And the day I buy it, like I am so pumped. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. So I get home and I'm like, girl, got your Christmas present. It's going to be awesome. Like I'm chomping at the bit. December 1st, I'm like, can I just give it to you now? Like I can't wait. It's just going to change your life, right? And God, for somehow, um, this mystery was hidden for ages, millennia past, from angels, demons, and people. And somehow God kept this quiet until the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And then he gets these apostles and he's like, bam, mystery unveiled. Now go um, tell everybody a gospel that is complete ludicrous foolishness to everybody. God is amazing, so patient. And then here's what he says. What is the plan of the mystery hidden in the ages in God who created all things so 
that through the, please say it with me, church. This is what's crazy. The local and global church is the ace that God had up his sleeve the whole time. This is, you and I, we're used to this. You and I, we just, this is our every Sunday, it's our every week, it's our community groups. This is the mystery that he kept hidden for eternity past in the mind of God and the heart of God. And finally, he lays it out before humanity in the angelic realm, and he says, this is my favorite thing. So I want to, I want to just take a minute, I want to talk to people who um, believe that you can love Jesus and hate the church. Or you can follow Jesus but be disconnected from the church. So allow me to be bold for a moment and say, if you want to know the heart of God, if you want to be passionate about the things God is passionate about, you cannot isolate yourself from the local expression in a local church. You cannot. That is like me being so pumped up about a gift that I give to my wife that she did not even know she needed, but she's been waiting for for years. And I give it to her, and she says, not interested. Like you, don't want your gift. It is what? Offensive. You hear that? So in a world that says, don't tell me what to do and what not to do, let me be the bold one to speak to you and say, you cannot be passionate about the heart of God and the things that God is passionate about and then not love his bride, the church. Okay? Let's think about it this way. We're sons and daughters of God, moms and dads. Do you like when people speak negatively about your kids or in a derogatory way? No, mama bear and papa bear comes out, right? And yet we want to step back and speak negatively of the church of God and, and think God should be fine with that. Now let me be clear. Are there dumb people in church? Yes, we're here, okay? Right? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. If you leave the church because of a pastor, a mean community, a dumb small group leader, and you abandon the heart of God because a human did those things, hear me, your faith is not in Jesus but in people. And so here's what I know. I know you have the capacity to hurt me because you have. And I know that I have the capacity to hurt you because I have. And I know that we have the capacity to do ridiculously sinful things because we have. But hear this. I am passionate about the church, not because you or I are good, but because this is the heart of God. And this is the crazy, ludicrous means by which he has chosen and hid in his sleeve for eternity past, revealed to the angels and the demons. This is the means by which I will change the world. A group of people who should hate each other, who should never get along from various um, different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and languages coming together in common mission and saying, what is more important than my culture or the food I like or the hobbies that I have is our unity in Jesus Christ. And God in the church is doing something that honestly should never happen anywhere at any time. And so I just want to submit to you that if you are, are, are we'll say, bitter towards the church, right, Jesus loves the local church, created, established it, is the head of it, sustains it, and is, is moving the mission of God on earth forward through the church. And if you want to be a part of what God is a part of, find a local church that preaches the Bible and the gospel, is faithful to that, and immerse yourself in it, because at the end of the day, this is God's plan for the earth. This is what he is doing. This is how he is primarily moving forward in the world. Sermon over, let's go to the next point, number three. Sub-sermon, I should say. That was amazing. Point number three. 
Not me, but the point in your, in your notes. The point in your notes. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So let's focus on the word manifold, and then we'll get to rulers and authorities. So manifold, um, you guys want to learn some Greek? Yeah, I don't often bring Greek up because you don't know it, but um, here's the word for manifold. It's a really unique, interesting word, and it is polupoikolos. It's two, two words brought together. And we'll talk about poikolos, which means multifaceted or a variety. So you get a rainbow, and there's a variety of colors, poikolos. Palu means many. So it's multi-multi or many multi-variety. Um, and so the idea here is sort of like this. You have 10 doors, and there is a variety of doors. But behind each of those doors are 100 more doors. And there's a multi-multi variety of doors. And behind each of those 100 doors is another 100 doors. And it's not just a variety, it is a multi-multi-variety. And so what God is trying to say is that the church is not just simply, right, um, people of different skin colors. It's people of different skin colors, people of different cultures, people of different languages, people from different nations, people from different generations, people from different century, people from different millennia, coming together a multi-multi-varied Wisdom of God. And so when, God, when Paul and God step back, here's what he says. This is the wisdom of God on display to take people who should be at each other's throats and create a loving, dynamic, purpose-filled community that takes over the kingdom of darkness. That is insane. And then we go back and he says um, at the very end of it, the church, which is the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is angels and demons. That God kept this ace up his sleeve for millennia to the point where even the angels and the demons did not know what God was up to. I can't keep a secret for that long. God apparently is awesome, and I am not. Amen? Amen? Good. I want to read to you a passage from 1 Peter chapter 3 um, that I think, or 1 Peter chapter 1, that really, I think, just grabs the point of this. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Like they wanted to know before Jesus, the Old Testament people, right? They wanted to know what's going to happen. When's it going to happen? What are the times? What is the Messiah going to be like? And it says, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ or the Messiah and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but who? You. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Literally, this means the angels are stooping over, trying to like look over our shoulders into the word of God, if you will, saying, what's God doing? What's God up to? Like Sometimes we think the angels are like co-planners with the Trinity, and apparently they're not. Apparently they're not aware of how salvation history is going to unfold. And as it happens, the angels step back and they say, holy smokes. Literally. <laughs> Get it? Get it? I right, Keeping you on your toes. So what? Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose. This, is, this plan goes back into eternity past. 
This is not something new. God wasn't like responding and be like, oh, I guess I want more people to come. We got to let the Gentiles come in because the Jews are giving me a hard time, right? That's not how this happened. This is according to the eternal purpose that he realized or came to realization when Jesus, born, died, raised, ascended. That sequence of events was when these aces up God's sleeve were finally revealed and he puts the trump card down in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Let me just take a moment and have a chat with those of you who are going to say anything like the following. I'm not like these people. I'm not good enough. God could never save me. I'm too far gone. My culture is too different. There, there are a million reasons why somebody does not believe they can come to Jesus or won't come to Jesus. And what this tells us is this. All of the rights all of the good works that every nationalistic religion requires for you to make the angry gods happy, okay, all of those ideas, the gospel just throws out the window. Just pitches them, burn them, light them on fire, never look at them again. They're stupid. They're wrong. They're leading people to hell. Here's the point. You, whoever you are, whatever century you live in, you, you can have total forgiveness of God. You can have, check this out, Boldness and access with confidence. Okay, every other religion on the planet, you know what you do? You walk to God hesitantly. You walk to God with fear and trembling. Christianity is fundamentally different. You walk to God as a son or daughter. You run up with boldness because you have complete and total access just like a good dad gives to his kids. They can run up to you and throw their arms around you and you have access. By being good, what's the answer? No, through our faith in him. I love this. Paul is constantly saying, it's like there is this pull in humanity towards works-based righteousness or works-based salvation or works-based forgiveness. It's like this pull, and he's like, I gotta pull you back because you will never, ever be good enough. And this is not how the divine economy works. In the divine economy, salvation is not by being good. It's by faith. It is by trust. And so Paul constantly pulls them back to this one point. So here's what I want to do. I want to close. I want to tell you a story, and then I want to read some scripture. I want you to go back in time with me. It's the 1800s. You can empathize with one of three characters in this story. Um, the captain the crew, or the slaves in the ship. You are an African. You're in a tribe. You are with your family, your neighbors, your cousins. You're doing what you do. Life is normal. You've got a bunch of little kids, a spouse you love. You work hard. Life is normal. This is all you've ever known. For generations and generations, this is your world. One day, um, out of nowhere, um, very strange-looking people with white skin different clothes, languages you've never heard, come in with weapons that you've never seen, and in front of your eyes, everything you've ever known has been torn apart. Some of your kids are dead, your wife is raped, people are separated. You find yourself being dragged into a vessel which is bigger than anything you've ever seen, put into the bottom of a boat, beaten mercilessly. You're being given food that isn't even fit for humans and that your body has never even begun to be adjusted to. And you are there. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's happening. You don't speak their language. But here's what you know. In their eyes, you're the scum of the earth. 
and you're going, and weeks go by, and your friends end up dying in front of you, and their bodies are never seen again. And you row, you get beat, and you sleep. And you repeat this over and over again as you experience sickness that your body has never been exposed to, and you experience levels of nausea that you didn't even know possible. Little do you know, on the upper deck in the captain's quarters, the captain, thinking he's doing what he's always been doing, has a moment. And Jesus himself intervenes in this captain's life. If they could have a conversation, it would be like this. Why are you torturing people made in my image? And the captain will respond. He will say, you don't understand. Um, this is what I've ever known. This has been my culture. This is what I grew up with. I was always told to think like this and talk like this. I've always told that they don't have souls and they're not human and they're not valuable and people different than me and if they don't worship my God. But I'm a Christian, Jesus. Like, I thought this was fine. And Jesus says, you don't understand anything. But let's just start. Let's start at the, the bottom. Everyone is made in my image. The captain, broken and in tears, gets his crew together and he realizes his entire life purpose is a sham and is vile and disgusting in every single way possible. He gets his crew together and he tells them, by the way, his crew is Christians, and he tells them what happened to him, what Jesus has told him. And there's this little muffled voice in half the crew that is always known deep down in their hearts when they rip fathers and mothers from their children that this is more vile and gruesome and they would never want this done to them. And so they are actually relieved and they say, we agree, we believe this is something we don't want to do anymore. But the other half, racists and bigots, they step back and say, who are you? You have no idea. This is wrong. You're going to get in trouble. You cannot say these kind of things. And there's a division on the boat. And so the captain, what he does, he uses his authority. He puts those who are um, opposing his view, and he puts them in chains. And then they go down, and they bring the translator, the interpreter down, and they proclaim Jesus to all of these slaves. And because Jesus is relevant for everybody, these slaves from these tribes, they end up believing because God opens their eyes. And they've got months on this boat. And the captain and the crew, in an act of repentance, they go actually, and they do rotating shifts on the oars, paddling and whatnot. They actually share their food and they share their quarters and they start to pray. They use translators and this becomes one unique and beautiful community. Meanwhile, those in prison on the boat are furious. They want the captain's head. And as they spend more time together, they realize that what they have in common as followers of Jesus Christ far transcends the differences of their color. They realize that Jesus is relevant for every culture. So the captain in his stroke of genius, if you will, says, we're going to go north. It's a little safer up there. I can't bring you back because you'll just get taken by somebody else, so we're going to go north. So the captain drops them off, and this community is given a mission. Tell everyone you know that salvation is in Jesus. And he looks at these, these Africans, and he says, I am committing my life from this point on to making sure every single African is freed from their slavery and knows about Jesus. So the captain goes on his day, goes on his month, and these people who are released, they want his head. Finally, life catches up to the captain. He's imprisoned. And he writes them this letter. And he writes a letter to all the Africans in the north who are telling more and more people and who are witnessing to all the slaves that have been brought over who know nothing but their tribal expressions, who speak their language, and he tells them, I'm in chains for you. Don't stop preaching. Now this you get because that is real. That, the residue of that is all around us. Now you have to take that, and you've got to go back 2,000 years to begin to understand the volatility and the hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles, that exists in these communities. You're not like us. You're the scum of the earth. 
And Jesus enters into these moments, into this racism and bigotry, and he enters into these religious expressions, which has nothing to do with Jesus, by the way. All of these demands for conformity, you must look like me, talk like me, act like me, worship like me, in order to be considered worthy of maturity or worthy of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul obliterates them. You get to Acts chapter 15, something crazy happens. Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to Gentiles, telling them that Jesus is for them. They get brought back to Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is Jewish, by the way. And the senior pastor is James, the brother of Jesus, who is Jewish. And in Acts 15, they're being interrogated. This is a trial. Like, you may read this as people trying to work stuff out. This is a trial for Paul and Barnabas. And the accusation is, who are you to preach freedom to these people? Who are you to not mandate conformity? And so James, the brother of Jesus, in a move that changes the church forever, says this. We will not mandate them to look like us, talk like us, be like us, think like us, or feel like us. We will preserve their culture. Jesus is relevant for everybody. Here's the only thing we ask. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's for everybody. And by the way, Gentiles, you're Jews. They have a blood issue. Okay, Don't eat meat with blood in it. Got it? That will help them a lot. Go. And they, once and for all, satisfy this issue And now Paul will spend the rest of his life telling Gentiles and helping Jews understand, stop being a bigot. Jesus is for everybody. Jesus is for everybody. And if Jesus can save a Christian, murdering, ethno-centered Jew like Saul of Tarsus, then he is for everyone, despite how vile or despite whether or not you think they're the scum of the earth. So I want to read for you in close. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. Get a glimpse into heaven. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, transcultural, transnational, transgenerational, And you have made all of them collectively together a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign in the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and and the elders. Here's what I heard, the voice of many angels. Now the angels are going to respond to this international, intercultural, transcultural, transgeographical gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen when the angels hear this, how they respond. The angels are numbering myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Like they are blown away at the mystery of God revealed that anybody can come to Jesus. And now it's not just Judaism, but there's one new body, one new uh, people group made up of people from all different tribes and tongues and nations and languages. And then it says, And I heard... Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, like people are responding to the mystery now revealed. It says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the four living creatures, here's what it says. They said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. That's how they responded to the international church of Jesus Christ for the first time. Isn't that crazy? And we, I get it, we're numb. I get it. 
I want to unnumb you. God, because of our place in history, we get to see God do so much more than any other people group has ever gotten to see. And we don't even know 1% of what God is up to. Most people, they never moved beyond 5, 10, 15, 20 miles of where they were born in human history. We get to see every hour what is happening globally. And even then, we don't understand the depth and the scope of what God is up to. And when we get to heaven and we see the manifold wisdom of God displayed in the church, expressed in local churches in every culture and every tribe and every nation and every language, bringing forth the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is relevant for everybody, you will say, you are amazing, the manifold wisdom and glory of God. So my desire at the end of this is to impassion you for a love again for what God loves so dearly, his bride, the church, and to get on mission with what God is doing in this world, which is primarily through the local church. Let's pray together. Father, I'm just very aware of how small and short-sighted that I and I know we can be. Um, we can be so American-centered to think that this is the pinnacle, this is the best it gets. This is nothing. And yet, God, we live on this side of the cross 2,000 years later, and we get to see Gentiles and Jews and blacks and whites and all different color 